Well, as I said, my name is Eric Barton, and as most of you know and who know me, you know that I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer, quite clearly. It takes me a long time to grasp things that other people get sort of instinctively and intuitively. It takes me a while to gather basic survival skills. Let me explain. When it comes to gift giving with my wife, I have made a volcanic crater of my life so many times, I can't even begin to count them. For example, very early on in my marriage, I gave my wife, for her birthday, a ream of paper. <laughs> I don't even mean like a big roll. I mean like a eight and a half by 11 ream of paper so that, you know, she could put it in the printer and I'm not proud of this, print her resume to get a job. Because I'm awesome like that. I'm like, well, here's our problem. We ain't got enough money. If you'll just get a job, hey, it's your birthday. Here's some paper. Just push print. Problem solved. And it was weird that she didn't like just hug my neck and thank me. But wait, there's more. How about on Valentine's Day, I'm not making this up, hand to God, on Valentine's Day, I gave her a super saver pack of diet supplements. That was this year. Literally two months ago to the day. I haven't so much as given that woman a high five since. Just like, remember me? Yeah, don't give your wife fat pills on Valentine's Day. All right, so just all that's to say, it takes me a while to learn things. But my wife, being exceedingly gracious and patient, has helped me, and we've come up with a family expression for how to give gifts. And here's sort of our construct. I know that I am able to give a gift if it involves her two primary ingredients, if it includes forethought and effort. So it doesn't even have anything to do with the cost. What a woman! It just has to include forethought and effort, both of which, by the way, I am utterly bankrupt. Nonetheless, I understand that it requires forethought and effort so that she understands that I have taken some steps, I have expended some energy, I have invested some time and some thought so that she feels loved, so that she feels lovely. Now, part of God's creation is that he reveals things to us generally in Revelation with things like spouses to help us understand little bits of his character. And if that's true of my wife, that I can make her feel loved and lovely just by demonstrating forethought and effort, then exponentially that is the case with our God. And not just in some abstract way but that we can actually begin to understand that the forethought and the effort that God extends and expends for our sake so that we will come to know and love Jesus the Christ as our personal Savior, there is no more amount of forethought and effort that could possibly be invested, and we get to see that this morning, that our God has taken some incredible steps to demonstrate how much he loves us, and his hope our hope, our prayer, is that we would in a very real and concrete way internalize that, that our sovereign God of creation actually loves us and is for us. One of my favorite songs ever is by a guy named Andrew Peterson. 
It's called The Dark Before the Dawn. And in one of the last verses, he talks about having a dream about finally going and seeing his Lord. He says, I had a dream I was walking at the burning edge of dawn, and I finally believed that the king had loved me all along. I can't hear that song without just having my face melt off. I finally believe that he has loved me all along. And what the gospel is intended to do is to help us, to equip us, to convince us that that is even true now, not necessarily just when we see him, but that it is true now. And the thing that is lacking most in my life, and I suspect probably largely in yours, is my understanding and my trust in how much God actually does love me, how much care and concern he has, and how much forethought and effort he has put into my redemption. So this morning, we're going to walk through the Gospel of John chapter 18. And I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, and I hope that we will all see, that we will all be able to look and see how much God loves you. That's our big idea for the morning that we will all look and see how much God loves us. We've been walking through John's gospel for many, many months now. We started back in September of 18, and now at long last, we have gotten to chapter 18. By now, if your experience has been anything like mine at all, as we've walked through the gospel of John, you've come to sort of feel a bit more deeply, think more uh, widely and clearly about this Jesus. I feel like I just know him a little bit more from all of the things that we've seen him do as he is announced on the scene as the Logos, as the one who exegetes, who reveals God the Father, as the one who turned water to wine, who cleansed the temple, who had a conversation with Nicodemus at night, who healed uh, an official's daughter from afar, who had a conversation with the woman at the well who healed a blind person who healed a lame person who fed thousands in chapter six on and on and on I just feel like I've gotten closer to Christ as a result of this study through the gospel of John now we've spent the last few weeks talking about the upper room discourse where Jesus has huddled up together with his disciples before he sets out on his journey to the cross this morning it's Palm Sunday on our calendar but in our narrative reading through John chapter 18 this morning, it's Thursday night. It's Thursday night in John's telling of how all of this goes, which means that in about 18 hours from what takes place in chapter 18, in about 18 hours, the Son of God and the Son of Man will be dead hanging on a cross. So this chapter is absolutely pivotal. We've got all these chapters of the Upper Room Discourse, and then, of course, in chapter 19, we have the crucifixion scene. We'll be discussing that on Good Friday. I want to remind you to make that part of your plan to be here at 6 p.m. this coming Friday, and we'll look at John chapter 19. But there is a transition. How do we get from the Upper Room to the cross? And that transition is chapter 18. Now again, John is not writing to include every single aspect of whatever transpires in between. He's writing so that you and I will believe more fully, more truly, more utterly in Christ and what he has done. John leaves out some pretty uh, important details, but that's simply because they don't directly support his primary thrust and his premise. For example, if we put all four Gospels together, what we find out is that Jesus actually has to endure six trials 
When they arrest him at night, before sunrise, the next morning, he actually goes through six separate trials. Three at the hands of the religious leaders of Israel and three at the hands of the Roman leaders. One before Herod, two before Pilate. Six separate trials. And in every single trial of the six, he is found not guilty. He is declared innocent and yet goes to his execution. So John doesn't tell us all those trials. He just sets up the encounters that Christ has so that we will understand what's going on. John actually has a theological theme for chapter 18. It's also the title of my sermon this morning for chapter 18, and it's simply one word, control. John wants us to understand that the entire time Christ is in control as he goes to the cross. Christ is in control. We see all these different people trying to exercise their control, but it's all for naught. We see Judas trying to control with manipulation and with schemes. We see the Roman soldiers trying to control with force. We'll see Peter trying to control the situation with his own strength. We'll see the leaders of Israel trying to control the situation with their religious influence. We'll see Pontius Pilate trying to control with governmental authority. And then we'll see Christ perfectly, sovereignly, calmly in control, controlling the entire thing. We might have a tendency to read John chapter 18 and feel a little bit sorry for Jesus, but what John wants us to do as we read through this is to not feel sorry for Jesus. This is his purpose. This is his plan all along. We are intended to feel sorry for everybody else. So with all of that, I'm going to read through John chapter 18 we're going to walk through very briefly all 40 verses of chapter 18, and then we'll see if we can apply this to our lives quickly at the end. So John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, these words being the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17. I'm so thankful last week that Josh White, our friend from Portland, Oregon, preached the entire chapter and did a marvelous job of expressing the love that Jesus has for his disciples, that God has for his people in chapter 17. But he finishes speaking those words. They went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron. Now, to an ancient reader, they know exactly what that means. If you're standing at the southern part of Jerusalem, looking at Temple Mount from the south, immediately to your right, that is to the east, Temple Mount goes down a ravine and it comes back up. In that ravine is the Kidron Valley. In the dry season, it's just a dry, stony little riverbed. But at the time of Passover, the drain from Temple Mount where all of the sacrifices would occur had a little tributary that would go from the Temple Mount altar and all of the animals that were sacrificed, their blood would drain down into the brook Kidron and it would run red for many days as literally the blood of the sacrifice would go. Jesus now goes and he crosses the brook Kidron with his disciples. We are intended to see the connection here that a thousand years earlier, David crosses the Kidron Valley, the brook Kidron, having been betrayed by one of his trusted advisors named Ahithophel. We're going to see that Jesus, the true Davidic king, is betrayed by one of his trusted disciples named Judas. So they crossed the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. This is a common place for them. Judas knows this. Right now it's the Passover season and so Jerusalem is 
filled with hundreds of thousands of people. And people would come in and establish little tents and little huts, and they would camp in the gardens and the hillsides. And so this is a place where Jesus and his disciples would frequently go. There's apparently a small enclosed section of this garden called the Garden of the Olive Press, which we call Gethsemane, Gethsemane. This is where Jesus would frequently go for a little rest and reconnaissance and prayer with his disciples. Now, Judas. It's interesting to me that Judas is the only one of the 12 disciples from the southern part of Israel. He's the only one from Judea. All the other 11 are from the north up in Galilee, the sort of uneducated Mississippi of Israel, if you will. Is the, uh, the, uh, the, the non-vetted, the not real sophisticated. But Judas is from Judea. We know that because he's called Judas Ishkiriot. Judas Iscariot. He is Judas Ishman of Kiriat. We know exactly where that is. It's very near Jerusalem. He's an educated man. He has expectations. He does not like Roman occupation. And so Judas is going to scheme and manipulate. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Why? Because Jesus often met there with his disciples. They would frequent there, and Judas thinks, ah, what's needed is to force Jesus' hand. And so Judas knows that there's a small enclosed garden up on this hillside on the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not like a, like a botanical garden. It's an industrial area where they actually harvest olives. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, <sighs> I wish that was not translated thus. The word is sparon. <sighs> Judas does not merely procure a band of soldiers. There's a lot going on in the text here. The word is sparon, and it means at a minimum 300 Roman soldiers. 300 minimum. More than likely, it's a cohort, which is a tenth of a Roman legion, meaning it would be 600 soldiers. Now, I don't know what scene plays in your mind as you envision all of this happening in this narrative, but Judas has negotiated with the Roman government on behalf of the Jewish leaders, and they show up with at least 300. That Greek word sparon cannot mean less than 300 because they don't know what they're going to encounter. Jesus is popular. Jesus has generated quite a following. And if a riot breaks out at Passover, when the city is full, when people are already fully tense, thinking about Passover, when Moses delivered them from bondage out from Egypt, and the Romans know this, they're thinking, if things begin to pop, we have to be able to put this down. And so they send in 300 armed soldiers, along with the Jewish temple guards, all fully armed to get a carpenter from Nazareth and 11 unarmed fishermen. <laughs> this is a pretty great scene. Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests. John is very careful to tell us this. It is both Gentiles and Jews that go to Jesus. This text, as has been the accusation, is not an anti-Semitic text. This is important that both Races are represented. We have both Jews and Gentiles complicit in the arrest of Jesus. Some officer of the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The Gospel of John is always dripping with irony. He who has been announced as the light of the world over and over again is now approached with lanterns and weapons. He who is unarmed, who is the very peace of God himself. 
Then, verse 4, <laughs> who's in control? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, does not react. He's not a victim. He's not being circumstantially cornered or hemmed in. Oh no. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus leads. They don't even get a word out before Jesus steps forward and says to them. He goes before them and in a sense begins the substitution so that his disciples will not be taken. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, and I don't know why our English translation feels like it has to translate it thus. It's incorrect. He simply says, I am. Ego me. The divine name. You might remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus is having a conversation with the Jewish leaders and they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus turns to them and goes, oh, before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up rocks to stone him. Why? Because he was saying he was very old? No, because he was claiming divinity. And here in the exact same way, the final time, Jesus simply says, I am. Not I am he, I am. Now, I don't know what happens. I can't tell you exactly what takes place, but I think this battalion, this detachment of soldiers, I think they see something. I think there is something that occurs because of what happens next. Jesus answered to them, I am. Judas who betrayed him was standing with them, making sure they knew which one was him. But he's already identified himself. Judas, you didn't have to do this. It's my plan all along. Verse six, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's a tip off. When someone simply says, I am, and three to 600 battle-tested, grizzled Roman soldiers who are familiar with, with marching orders fall down on their backs, that's a tip off that this guy is special. When God reveals himself in person, when God shows up, you cannot keep your footing. That's what's happening here. Anytime you see God show up in the Old Testament and approach someone, they cannot keep their footing. They're knocked over or they have to take off their shoes because they're on holy ground. They approach Jesus. He simply says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. And they fall down. Who's in control? Who's running the show? Not, the, not Judas with his manipulation, not these Roman soldiers with their torches and their weapons. Jesus with the word says, I am. They fell to the ground. So verse seven, <laughs> this is nice of him. I'm sorry, who again did you say you were looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Please don't knock us over again. Now, Jesus is so crafty, so creative, so clever here so wonderfully protective of his flock. This is what a good shepherd does. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. The idea being, I told you who I was, you fell over. Now who are you looking for? Just you, just me you said. You said by your own words, you're looking for Jesus. Well, I am, these guys ain't Jesus, let them go. And already we see Jesus substituting himself for their sake. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. When? Well, in chapter 17, when he's praying in the high priestly prayer, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Nothing is outside of the control of Christ as he marches to the cross. Then Simon Peter 
golly, Gomer Pyle Simon Peter decides, I know what I'll do. I'll pick up this sword that I just so happened to, where did Peter get a sword? The Army-Navy surplus store, of course. I have no idea. Why does this fisherman from Galilee have a sword? Well, we're going to see that he probably should not have had. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and stuck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. It's been said he was either the most amazing swordsman ever, perfectly removing the ear, or the worst swordsman ever, missing the head. My sense is that fishermen don't make great swordsmen. And so Peter is ready, fire, aim. And he chops off this guy's ear thinking, I know who's behind this. It's the high priest. And Jesus, I've already told you in chapter 13, I'll never leave you. Everybody else will, but not me. I'm the rock. Do you smell what the rock is cooking? I got this, Jesus. And he draws a sword and he risks the slaughter of his comrades. You don't attack a company of three to 600 Roman soldiers with a sword, it's going to end badly. Peter not thinking. Peter thinking, I have a strong right arm. I can fix this. Come on, Jesus, let's take them. I mean, in Peter's mind, he's thinking, I've seen Jesus do some pretty incredible things. That whole quieting of the storm, the walking on the water, the feeding of the thousands, the healing of a blind man and of a lame man. Surely you can knock him over again. Let's take him. Now, what's amazing to me is the demonstration of grace here. Oh, by the way, the servant's name was Malchus. Now, John doesn't tell us, the other gospel writers will tell us that Jesus heals the right ear of this, of this man named Malchus. Why are we told his name? You have to remember, these are all eyewitness accounts. This man is named because he himself more than likely tells John later what happened to him, which means we believe in a lot of church tradition that Malchus himself probably becomes a believer, and he tells John how this whole thing went down. His name was Malchus. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, huh, what? What would, what would you think he's going to say? Well, it's incredibly gracious. Put your sword into its sheath. I don't even think it's a rebuke. I think it's just Jesus going, Peter, you don't understand. He asks him a rhetorical question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Meaning, shall I not go to judgment that the Father has purposed and planned? It's an amazing demonstration of grace, I think, that Jesus doesn't stop and see this bloody ear on the ground, pick it up, put it back on. How cool is that, by the way? I mean, this is his enemy, the servant of the high priest. And Jesus just graciously, apparently, returns the ear. Why do I think he puts the same ear back on? Because if the old ear would have been laying there, they would have built a church around it, right? So I'm pretty sure he just puts the old one right back on, and we're good to go there. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus doesn't turn to the Romans and go, you know what? I changed my mind. Take him. Take him. He's got a sword. He thinks he's Captain Awesome. Why don't y'all take him instead? But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, Peter, Peter. Here's the gospel. I've got to go to judgment. I'm in control of this. You're not in control of this, Peter. And if you are in control, you will make a flaming wreckage of it, Peter. Anytime you try to use your strong right arm, only thing that is produced is blood. I have to do this, Peter. I am in complete and total control. Well, verse 12 so the band, the Speron, the 300 plus soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, which must have been a really difficult job when Jesus just offers his hands. And those hands that created the cosmos, he offers up to bondage. 
Verse 13, first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Here's what's going on. When you become the high priest, you are high priest for life. But the Romans come in and they take over, they invade and they occupy. And they don't like having an Israeli official with that much concentrated power. So periodically the Romans would just say, nope, high priest, you're out. And they would depose him. Annas has been deposed as high priest 20 years earlier. But he's still kind of the godfather. He has had five sons that have been high priest after him. And now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is high priest. They just keep moving right down his lineage, making new guys high priest. But everybody in Israel knows that Annas is the guy who still calls the shots. He doesn't occupy the throne. He's the guy behind the throne. And so these Romans and these Jewish soldiers take Jesus to go and see Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas, in case you had forgotten, who had advised the Jews back in chapter 11 that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. John tells us that again to remind us this has been God's plan all along. Substitution is the core of what we cling to as Christians. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now John doesn't tell us this expressly, but we're pretty certain that's John himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, how is John known to the high priest? That's bizarre. Well, John and his brother James are the sons of a man named Zebedee. And we know that Zebedee was a man of influence because we're told that Zebedee has servants. When Jesus calls his disciples, James and John, they leave their father with the hired servants in the boat. Most fishermen are not wealthy enough to have servants. So it's thought that this man, Zebedee, was a man of influence, a man of means, and he was probably connected to the high priestly family as well. And we know that John and Andrew were followers of and disciples of John the Baptist, which means they had come south and spent time in Judea with John the Baptist and would have been familiar and frequenters of the temple, and so they knew this guy. It's a bit of a strange thing that John mentions, but we think that's what's going on. But Peter, verse 16, stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now this is very, very interesting. There's a servant girl. John apparently knows her, is familiar with her, and says, hey, that's my boy Peter. Let him come in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also, that's a crucial word in understanding what's going on here. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? The word also is massive. John apparently pulls no punch and says, yes, I am one of his disciples. And she doesn't do anything. She's just asking. But Peter hears that and he shrinks back. That's interesting. I'm willing to charge 300 Roman soldiers with one sword, but a teenage girl takes me off my feet. Been there. I was a youth pastor. I know how that works. It's a terrifying thing. An eighth grade girl. I get it. You also, so John apparently identifies himself, yes, I'm a disciple of his. And she says, okay, are you a disciple also? And Peter, in stark contrast, whereas they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, ego me, I am. She says, are you one of his disciples? Peter says, ook me, I am not. And that's all the difference in the world. Jesus is, Peter ain't. Who's in control? The one who is. Who's not in control? The one who ain't. Now that's good theology right there. Write that one down. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. That'll be enormously important when we get to chapter 21. 
because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. What's the point of John giving us all this detail? The historicity. This is historical fact. This actually happened. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus. So he's been ferried back and forth from Annas. Now he's in front of, he's gone to see the Sanhedrin. And now he's in front of Caiaphas, the acting high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. That's what he wants to know. Are you a threat to our status? Are you a threat to our nation and our control? Are you going to have the Romans depose me too? What are you all about? How many of these disciples do you have stashed away? We know that we saw you march into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey a week ago. We know that thousands of people are with you. What are you about to do? What are you teaching? Jesus answered in verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. This is the high priest standing before Jesus and not the other way around. Jesus says, I have never spoken in secret. Everything I've done has been right out in the open as opposed to what you are doing. The number of illegalities that occur in these trials of Jesus have led most Jewish people to this day to say that could never have happened. There are too many irregularities. A man named Rabbi Wise actually wrote a book about this. There's no way that this many illegalities and irregularities would ever happen in a Jewish court of law, but they do. It is a complete travesty of justice. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. In other words, I've always spoke openly, but you men are gathering at night. That is illegal. You are gathering without the full counsel of the Sanhedrin. That is illegal. You have brought me to trial without an attorney. That is illegal. You have asked me direct questions. That is illegal. Over and over again. Well, there's, there's more. When he had said these things, somebody understood that Jesus was rebuking the high priest. One of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Punches him right in the face. Again, a trained soldier. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He's not trying to defend himself. He's not trying to wiggle out of the situation. He's in complete control the entire time. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, we got two stages of action happening here. Two different scenes happening side by side. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? Apparently John had no problem telling everybody that he was a disciple. And I'm sure Peter, to this day, appreciates the fact that John records this. In fact, all four gospel writers record the threefold denial of Peter, to which I'm sure he's been grateful for these 2,000 years. Thanks, guys. Much love. Are you also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Hey, you cut off cousin Malchus's ear. I saw you. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now the other gospels go into a lot more detail there that he looks across the courtyard and sees Christ perfectly, precisely in transit, right on time, and their eyes meet and the rooster crows and that Peter goes out weeping bitterly. 
Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. I beg your pardon? You've just convened an illegal court. You've not given this man an attorney. You've addressed him directly, which is illegal. You've punched him in the face, which is illegal. We also find out from the other gospels that the high priest tears his robes and speaks directly against Jesus. That is highly illegal. Totally breaking all of their own laws. But they don't want to enter this Gentile's house so that they can eat the Passover. That they're concerned about. We don't want to cross the threshold so that we can eat the Passover. We don't mind unjustly punching a man who is innocent in the face. That's interesting. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Listen how they answer, verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Sidestep. What charge do you bring? He's bad. And if he wasn't bad, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Just, just trust us on this. What's going on here? The Jews hated Pilate. Pilate hated the Jews. We know that Pontius Pilate was actually from Seville, Spain. He was ruthless, he was clever, and he had done the one thing that no Roman leader ever wanted to do. He lost face. He had been given the title friend of Caesar. But when he's appointed the regent of the area of southern Israel of Judea, he marches banners bearing the emblem of Emperor Tiberius into the temple. And the Jews say, we will not stand for that. Take them out of here. Pontius Pilate says, I will not. They say, take them out. He says, I will not. And you better disperse or I will kill all of you. And the Jewish people do this. Then you'll have to kill us all. And Pontius Pilate backed down. He removed the banners. And as such, he lost his standing with Caesar. He's no longer called friend of Caesar. As a result, every other time the Jews would gather, he would send plain-clothed soldiers into the crowds and just start stabbing Jewish people because he hated them so much, and so they hated him. But enemies make strange bedfellows. The Jewish people need for this to happen to Jesus. Pilate went outside. What charge did he bring? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Just help us out. Just go along with this deal. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. What about a trial? What about the whole Jewish law that you have to have two separate trials to condemn a man to death at least 24 hours apart? They're not doing that. They're just saying, we need him executed. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. They're going to kind of forget that by Acts chapter 7 when they stone Stephen to death. But they don't want Jesus stoned. They know that he is an influential leader. They want to make sure that everybody knows that God is not on his side. God is on their side. And so they want him crucified. Incidentally, so does Jesus. That's why Jesus had said earlier, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that you must only look upon him and be saved. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He could not die by stoning. That would have broken his bones. That would not have been sufficient of the curse in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, which is why Paul will say in Galatians 3, he became for us our curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. 
So Pilate, verse 33, entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? In other words, they're trying to declare you guilty of political unrest, of sedition, of trying to overthrow the government. Is this true? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Why are you asking this, Pilate? Jesus knows, of course. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Of course not. I don't care. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. And that must have stung Jesus, who enters Jerusalem and he weeps over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to call you to myself, but you would not have it. And here they are turning him over. Even though it is his perfect plan, it still must have stung What have you done? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Oh, I am a king, all right, but not like the kind that Rome is afraid of. It's way bigger. And my kingdom residents are the people of the truth. Then Pilate said to him, Ah, so you are a king. That one word he seizes on. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king for this purpose. Now listen, Jesus' claim of both humanity and divinity in one sentence. For this purpose, I was born, that's his humanity, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. That is his preexistent divinity. I was born, I am human, and I come into the world, that is my divinity. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Those are the people who are of my kingdom. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, a billion sermons have been preached about this. But what's the most important thing that is often left off is what Jesus himself says in John chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. So when Pilate says, what is truth? He has no idea that he's actually staring at the one who is. It's me. Jesus does not answer him. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. He declares him innocent yet again. Every single time there's a trial, Jesus is declared innocent of the charge of sedition. I find no guilt. And yet, Pilate, trying to control the situation with his authority of the government, is going to condemn an innocent man to die. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. I know you Jewish people are at fever pitch now. It's the Passover. You want to be released from bondage, so I'm going to let off some of the pressure. I know that this Jesus guy is popular. I saw him march in the town last Sunday. I know that a lot of your people like him. So how about this? I will let him go. Or I have this other guy who was a robber, an insurrectionist, a thief, a killer named Barabbas. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, an insurrectionist. Barabbas, which means son of the father, who knows he is guilty, who fully expects to die, and his cell door swings open, and because of the substitution of this innocent man, the guilty goes free. Barabbas is the first one that experiences and enjoys the substitution that Christ offers. So, very quickly, three things I just want to Im, uh, bring implications to demonstrate the forethought and the effort of our God so that we will look at this passage and see how much God loves us. 
Number one goes like this, and hopefully it's fairly obvious, but it goes like this. God is in control. Or perhaps I should put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. God is in control. God is in control. God is in control. You see, God is sovereign over all of this. I know it's fairly obvious, and we sort of know that in the abstract, but this passage is telling us that no matter how things might seem, we are to see and recognize that things aren't always as they seem. When things look like they're out of control, they have never been in the course of human history. God is always sovereign. He is active. He is good. And he's moving his life towards ours for our ultimate good. God is sovereign and he always accomplishes his purposes perfectly and precisely on time through the bad choices of billions of people and the occasional rooster. God is that sovereign. Even roosters do his bidding perfectly and precisely on time. It might seem, it might seem like the world is spinning out of control, but I love how Dallas Willard has paraphrased Romans 8:28. No irredeemable harm will ever befall the child of God because God is in control. Number two, if you think you're strong, you're wrong. <laughs> when you find yourself like, hey, I think I'm doing, I got this. And in your self-sufficiency, surprise, things are about to go south. You see, the sin of every single human heart is that we want to be God. We see that in Genesis 3. We see it in Isaiah 14. We want sovereignty over our lives and for nobody to tell us what to do. But this passage, all of John 18, is showing us that we as a species are all dangerously unqualified and incapable of controlling anything at all. It never ends well. And when we find ourselves relying on our own strengths or our gifts or our talents or our abilities to the extent that we don't need God, surprise, God loves us way too much to ever leave us simmering in our own self-sufficiency because that's never going to end well. So instead, because of this text and so many others like it, we get now to proactively decide to rethink our thinking and appreciate that there is a God who is in control and I am not He. He is. It's his name. And like Peter, we can say, I am not. And there is sweet peace in that confession that God is in control and that I am not. Number three, the shepherd is our substitute. I've tried to say this repeatedly throughout the Gospel of John. It's one of his uh, master themes is the idea of substitution. It's the distinctly Christian aspect of what we find that God himself becomes human and innocently suffers for the sake of the guilty so that human beings can experience and enjoy life eternal with God. Or as it's been said before, the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. Just like we were saying this morning, Jesus really paid it all. He is the atonement. He is the propitiation. That is the satisfaction of God's wrath. Barabbas the Son of the Father is the first one to experience that substitution. And Jesus voluntarily went through all that we have read so that we would never have to. And so, when we find ourselves slipping into a mindset or a pattern of self-atonement, that, well, I've, I've messed that up, I can make it right, I can fix this. Because of this text, we can say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. It is finished. Jesus has already paid it all. God's not mad at me. He loves me so much that I am fully forgiven. And believing that will totally change your life and mine. Look and see how much God loves you. 
I think the point of this passage in John chapter 18 is that we would see that Christ is always in complete control all the way to the cross. You might remember way back in John chapter 6, thousands of people rushed Jesus and tried to make him king, but he resists. He hides himself over and over again. It's not his time. But in this case, when it's time for him to go to the cross, he is the one that initiates. He steps forward and says, I will go to that cross. I will be the substitution. Let them look and see how much I love them. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you've shown us in this passage. We pray, God, that all of us would increase in our capacity to comprehend, to understand, to internalize that you love us, that you are for us. We don't have to earn your favor. We don't have to appease your temper, that you are delighted with us. So I pray, Father, if there's some this morning that do not know you, that you would move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, that they would believe, that they would receive and step into life everlasting. For the rest of us, Father, who have perhaps grown gray and dim in our understanding of how much you love us, would you remind us anew of the lengths, the forethought and the effort to which you went in Christ to redeem us to yourself and, praise God, to one another. May it be, Father, would you continue to speak to us in the present tense through this passage. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning. Let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction. I want to remind you that at the end of every service, we've always got someone here at the front. Colleen's here this morning. Would love to pray with you. Also, our Seder dinner is on Wednesday. Make that a part of your plan. Good Friday is at 6 p.m. in this very room. And then Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday morning, 6.30 in the coffee garden. Nothing says empty tomb like breakfast tacos in the first floor listening room after our sunrise gathering in the coffee garden. Now, may our God, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that which we will celebrate next weekend, may he equip you for every good work and may you do it. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast.